Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave, the only show geared specifically to help educate you about your back pain. We talk to the experts to bust the myths, break down the science, and give you all the top tips for living pain-free. So, if you're driving to work, tidy in the house, or even laid up at home in pain, we have something for everyone. Okay, welcome back to the Back Pain Podcast, Sports Edition. My name is Dave. This is my co-host, Rob. Hello. And we're joined today by Nick Metcalf. Hi, Nick. Hello, everyone. Hello, mate. Right, so uh, Nick Metcalf is chiropractor to top-level Premier League football team and speaker for the Royal College of Chiropractors as part of their specialist for sports facility. Um, uh, this is some big credentials we're rocking here today, guys. <laughs> this is going to be a really interesting one. Uh, Nick's worked for the Premiership Football Clubs for the last three seasons, um, and we think she's uh, we think he's got some interesting stuff to tell us today. So this is our sports edition podcast, right, guys? Let's go. Let's do it. Nick, good afternoon, sir. Hello. Thank you so much Happy for joining to be here. us today. Happy to be here. Yeah. So what we're going to do is skirt narrowly around which team you're working for, because that's not important. We're going to be talking about back pain in pro athletes, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. how similar that, you know, what's that got to do with the common person on the street? Um, uh, You know, if I'm sitting there at my desk or listening in my car, what can you teach me about me? Mm. Okay, so how common is back pain, Nick? Are you you in the athletic population, in in pro sports people, Mm. are you seeing back pain? Is that a thing just for, for norms like us? Now that back pain, athletes get back pain as well. I guess a good starting point is maybe a comparison between maybe the more general population and what sort of percentage of general population seem to get back pain from and then compare that to the athletic population. I know the, uh, the British Chiropractic Association did, uh, did, did a study last year um, asking people about back pain and they suggested 49% of the general population experience some sort of back pain and neck pain during during a given week so during a one week period 49 percent of people are experiencing back pain um and a couple of things that came out from that same study was that um was that that sport and exercise seem to be one of the top five triggers for back pain and neck pain in the general population really? which is strange because it's it's pretty well understood nowadays that when you have back pain keeping fit and active is actually you know a top tip it's it's, it's encouraged yeah. to keep fit and active so i think that kind of opens a opens a like an interesting discussion about the fact that i think in the general population i think people are getting more and more sedentary just with the nature of work and 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 sitting and then the trouble is is that people are going from from not using their spines very much to then suddenly overusing their spines quite a lot yeah um, and almost being overactive too quickly which um which I guess in a sporting term in sports medicine, we describe that as load. So as we, as, as a, and someone in the general population loads their back chronically in a, in a sitting position, and then they might go into maybe a bit more intense activities, a different type of load. And if you do, you know, too much, too much load too quickly, so that's too much stress through the spine too quickly. I think that, that, that makes someone prone to aches and pains it's the weekend warriors the, the weekend warriors the, yeah the, the people who sit down in office all day and then go and try and play five aside at the weekend or weight lift or do gymnastics whatever it might be any sport is that overload if you will that will yeah exactly irritate it. okay exactly and then looking at the jet the like the athletic population moving more towards like professional athletes um i do know also know there's a study it was done over a sort of 50 to 60 year time period i think looking at all different studies on like almost like a, a comparison of all different studies over that time period. And there was a suggestion that the, the athletic population, it's about one to 30%. So that range, a big range, one to 30% of athletes experience some back pain as well. Wow. So That's a lot athlete, harder athletes, athletes do get back pain. Um, and we can just maybe be a bit less specific about how many athletes, because it's, it's going to depend, depend on the sport, I think. Okay. So moving on then for that, is that more common in certain sports so is there i know you said depends on the sport is it more prevalent in certain sports than others um i think so uh I, again it probably goes down to load if we maybe just talk a bit more about what load means in and you know without getting too much into the weeds i guess load is i mentioned earlier is almost like the stress that someone puts through their body so athlete, athletes and, and and sports science and strength and conditioning will often talk about load through an athlete's body so for the spine, if, 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 if 
an athlete loads their body too much or too quickly, then it, it, at some point they're going to break down and get injured. Um, so load, if you think about your training, could be exercise intensity, it could be exercise volume, it could be um, maybe a rest, too, not enough rest or not enough recovery. It could be maybe to do a technique as well. Um, and if you think about that, it's going to vary with each sport. And I think there are probably certain sports where people are experience more, more back pain. So um, if you're bending and twisting and torsioning through your spine, if it's a sport that involves that, that's quite a lot of load. You're going to experience probably yeah. some more back pain. So by loading, you don't mean physical load in terms of like a weightlifter having load on his back. It's more the stresses that he's putting onto it is the cumulative or, or she, stress yeah. over a period of time on that person's body. And particularly if we're talking about back pain through yeah. the spine. So load could be picking up the children or digging in the garden. That is load to the back and doing that for six hours compared to one hours is cumulatively more load through the spine. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, an analogy that might be simple for people to understand is if I'm going to train for a marathon, right? Uh, I've got a, an entry for next year's London Marathon. If I go and start out and tr- trying to run a half marathon every single day to try and be, you know, that's too much load too quickly. Yeah. I'm going to get injured. Mm. So it's a case of, of, of having a training plan and gradually building up your load so that you're ready for the, for the day in the future. Totally makes sense. Now with an athlete though, with, with a professional, let's say, the reason for doing that load is obviously your training. Mm. How what happens then if you've got someone with back pain? I'm not sure if I, I've just cut a corner here, but um, you're, are you always able to decrease that that repetition? Then um, obviously we can't stop them training, stop them playing. They've got contracts, they've got responsibilities, yeah. they've got a team Finances. behind them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges of working with athletes is um, sometimes it it it's often really difficult to stop them completely to to completely deload. Mm. To, to stop their training is often difficult. So it's a case of trying to work out what the athlete can do despite their back pain, what the athlete can do so that you can continue to load their body, to train their body so they can maintain their fitness, but remove some of the strain away from their back so they can stay stay fit. So by the time their back has recovered, they haven't lost some of their conditioning, if you like. But that's the tricky part, and uh, and being able to encourage an athlete to to do less, particularly with you know with certain targets in the future of competition and things like that, that that's a that's a tricky thing. Absolutely. So more modification rather than cutting things yeah, out. It's, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and you're, yeah, you're right. With that. I think with a general population, for a short period of time, people kind of understand. Oh, I want you to stop exercising. Mm. But uh, but with with an athlete, you have to just modify the exercise. I think that's well put. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, especially if they've got huge financial you know someone who's just made it into a, a first top flight sports team they probably come into a, a windfall of money and they've got lots of overhead so imagine when you're telling someone that they can't play yeah. and they can't get their match bonus or their win bonus or whatever they might encourage yeah they're gonna hide injuries and almost pretend they're ready because they've got a lot riding on the line it's yeah. not like it's a, a fun run at the weekend yeah they've got a house to pay for you yeah. know and this is their livelihood so it's yeah. very different from joe public who yeah. like myself if i miss a fun run nothing happens. You know, if, if someone misses a big game, it, yeah, it has mm. big, big consequences. As, uh, as part of the role with the football club um, uh, during the transfer windows, I'll, as, a, as a chiropractor, I'm performing a spinal assessment on, on a potential new signing. Mm. And my spinal assessment goes in the melting pot with, say, the physio's assessment and the strength and conditioning assessment and the doctor's assessment. But, but it's when I start, first started doing those, it's probably one of the first few times in my career where I'm doing a number of tests, a battery of tests on a on an athlete that we may be signing. And of course, that athlete doesn't want me to find anything. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, and so I have to really trust my skills and my experience to be able to pick up and detect certain things um, and, and have that in a report at the end of the day. Um, and the athletes almost fighting against me. They don't want the things to be signed. They want yeah. to be signed. Oh, too right, yeah. Any um, pain there? No! <laughs> <laughs> You know, and take the every everyday person again, like you said, who I may see maybe more in private practice. Who, like, we know they have an issue. They've come in because they have an issue to see me, and it. You know, with my battery tests, um, it's easier to find things. I ask them, "Are you having any pain?" They'll tell me yes, mm. and um, yeah, it's, they, it's a challenge. They want you to find something. They and want me to find something. Yeah. yeah, and they want you to find something. And we've all seen patients who get there, and they're actually quite good that day for whatever reason. They might have had back pain for ten years, but then they come in and go today's just a really good day and they they want they are annoyed that they don't have back pain because they want you to find 
where it hurts and poke where it hurts and do a test and mm. go, that's my pain. And if you've got someone that doesn't have that, imagine that's a real challenge to mm. be like, yes, that doesn't hurt. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. Or you get lots of, uh, I've made sure to do lots of gardening today to make it as worse as possible yeah. for you. So you can definitely, oh no, no you don't have to do that. I knew okay. I was coming in to see you today. Mm. So I've dug up my whole garden yesterday. <laughs> yeah, because I, I haven't thought- taken any of my painkillers yet. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. So going back to load then of athletes, you mm. spoke about that cumulative stress. Mm. Who is the person that, in a professional sports setting, that could be any sport that dictates you're doing too much and doing too little. Is that the, I mean, maybe speaking about the, um, the organization might, mm. might be a good starting place, but is that the coach? So is that the physio? Mul- yeah, good question. So there's a multidisciplinary team in, in, in uh, um, professional sport that's managing, I guess, managing the athletes. And particularly, um, I can talk of football. Um, there, there's, there's a team of analysts um, and, and a team of sports scientists who are working really closely together um, and again, I don't go too much into the weeds, but there's two types of load in particular. These analysts and these sports t- scientists are trying to measure. They're trying to measure exactly as possibly this intrinsic load. So an exa- that's almost like internal load. That's like a self measure that an athlete will give about how much load, maybe like an indicator about how much load they're going through. So every day an athlete will come into a sporting environment and they'll often be asked, maybe on a, on a scale of one to five or one to 10, how tired they're feeling today or how mm. sore they're feeling today or how much sleep they've had or what their mood is like. These are kind of internal ways of trying to measure maybe what their body's been going through. And then a bit later on during the day after a training session, one of the analysts will make sure they come across to each athlete and they'll ask the athlete to measure their, their they call it an RPE, rate of perceived exertion. So basically it's like a self-measure of how tough that, athlete thinks that session was again maybe one to ten and they'll collect those numbers every single day from every single athlete and they'll put it into a spreadsheet and analyze it and what they're looking for is a sudden a sudden peak in load and per athlete or as a squad as a whole mm. because it's those sudden peaks in load that has been shown to result in injury it doesn't say where the injury will be but it's more likely yeah, really. going to result in injury so that's that would be intrinsic load or internal load and then there's kind of extrinsic or external ways of measuring load too um, you see the footballers when you know when they take their shirt off when they're celebrating a, uh, yeah. celebrating a goal they wear these little crop tops you seen them yeah yeah that's like so that's their GPS satellite that they're wearing uh, underneath yeah. their top and so they uh. can measure during matches and during training how much how many kilometers they've covered during that session or how many sprints they've done during that session that's quite commonplace in in professional sport now um, and that's a, that's another way that the an, the analysts will handle, you know put that into a spreadsheet analyze it over a period of time and they're trying to get the athletes to peak in time for a competition or just to not overload their body to try and reduce injury risk. So you're looking for that one athlete that's gone, he's done double the amount of sprints that week and he's run 20K rather than 10K that Mm. he might be a bit tired. So you're not going to then push him in training that week and he might have a few more rest days, see the physio or the chiro a few more times or whatever it might be. That's how it all... Exactly right. And and again, maybe more if we look at... That that would be on a pitch. Maybe we look at more like recovery. If someone's coming and they're measuring themselves as they've had a a really bad night's sleep um, and their stress levels are really high, then... That would that would be flagged up on the on on the spreadsheet, mm. and that person be pulled aside, the athlete be pulled aside, try and dig around a little bit more as to why their body's because you know that's the sort of thing that could end up in an injury as well. Their body's not able to recover as much if they're under that state, in that in that state. Yeah. So that's a big difference then from in private practice when you're seeing patients who aren't in the elite setting because most patients you might see them once, maybe twice a week, mm-hmm. and then you have you might have a week in between a session, maybe two weeks if they're away, and trying to dig down deep into. Did they sleep? How did that affect it? We know that sleep has a huge impact on back pain. Are they stressed? Are they anxious? Are they tired? Have they overloaded it? And trying to get that two-week period, one-week period, even three-day period down into a 10-minute chat hmm. is very difficult. Whereas if you're in the elite athlete setting, you're measuring as much as possible hmm. every you know, mm. three or four times a day almost if you're looking at sleep and then stress mm. and then load and then training. And again, it's, it's measured as well. You know, how was your sleep this week? That was all right. <laughs> yeah, it's quite tough. Whereas actually, yeah, to have it that that um, uh, uh, definitive, you know, down to daily, hourly, mm. and all the rest, and have that over time. That's that's the big thing that that over time measurement. Um, yeah, I think that'd be a fantastic tool. And these these this discussion of load is kind of body wide. If we bring it back to spine specifically, I guess which would be my area of expertise or chiropractor's area of expertise. Um, you can, if you apply load to a body, if you apply load to a spine, there's still certain characteristics we need the spine to have mm. to withstand that load. So is the spine robust enough to tolerate this load that we're, that we're going on about? 
and uh, three key areas that uh, three or four key areas that I'm looking for as the sports chiropractor in working with these elite athletes is having flexibility in the right areas of the spine, having strength in the right areas of the spine, which is kind of linked with stability. So stability or strength, and then having control in the right areas as well. Now, if you have those three or four things, flexibility, strength, stability, and control in all in the right areas of the spine, then that is a robust spine. So it can tolerate a lot of load, mm. um, you know, over a period of time. Um, maybe a more amateur or, or amateur athlete or more general population, they might struggle in a number of those areas. So their spine's not robust. So you give it even just a small amount of load, like bend down, pick up a pencil. How many times do we hear that? Bend yeah, down, pick up a pencil. pencil. It's just a pencil. It was only a pencil. Yeah, I know. We hear it all day. Yeah. And their back's gone into spasm. Like yeah. that's, uh, that's probably low-level cumulative load over a period of time and a poorly functioning spine. Yeah. No, that's so true. I've never really thought about it that way. And mm. it's, uh, yeah, because we assess patients primarily who are already in pain. Mm. So you're, you're almost doing from the, 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 the prior, before they have pain, to assess how capable they are to deal with what they're going to go through at that top flight level. Mm. Really interesting. Mm. Yeah, a bit of a different way of thinking around it rather than mm. here's the pain, here's the presentation. Mm. You've got to catch that before. I think it's quite easy as a clinician, chiropractor, physio, osteopath, doctor to analyze someone when they already have the injury. It's quite, we can, you know, we can take an MRI scan of that. We can, we can, we're trying to find the specific tissue that is causing the pain. We could uh, do our, do our number of tests that have got really accurate uh, predictors as to what the diagnosis may be. But once that person is out of pain or that athlete is out of pain and we're more leaning Go, more going towards a bit more of like instead of so reductionist like looking at things on a small scale maybe taking a step back and look being trying to look a bit more holistically like how the body is working as a whole like the athlete's not in pain at this point then then the tests that we do admittedly they are slightly less accurate mm. so maybe we need to try and find a number of different tests that are trying to show the same things and we're trying to we're trying to yeah we work it's, it's a different it's a it's a different kind of uh, it's a it's a challenging area. We're trying to make someone's body function optimally, um, as opposed to just trying to settle some pain down. I do think that's where that's where uh, chiropractors and and physios and and osteopaths can be really good at is 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 working at improving function, not just working at improving pain. Yeah. But as we said earlier, a well functioning spine or a well functioning body is a robust body can tolerate a lot of load, which means potentially better performance you can train hard you can compete more mm. um so that's kind of why this multidisciplinary team works really hard and that's where the budget goes as well the budget goes at trying to prevent injury yeah um and and if if we're failing that's when you get lots of injuries yeah, yeah. if you've got a player that you've just signed for 100 million and they miss a season that's a lot of money down the pan so you mm. know you'll do as much as you know if you have to spend two million on getting the better or avoid stopping them from getting injuries is money well spent in mm. their book really so what is the organization in terms of assessing and treating is that a in in most professional sports will people have will all, most sports have a chiropractor physio and an osteo and a medical doc and everything or how will how will that i think majority of professional sports nowadays will almost certainly have a, a physiotherapist or a team of physios uh, a sports doctor um, and and some soft tissue therapists. Mm. Um, so that's the that's the, almost the three key professions that you see in most professional sports in the UK. But increasingly, um, chiropractors and osteopaths are working in these uh, working these environments. I think sports medicine is seeing the value of having those people on the team. Um, and uh, and 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 we all kind of cover each other's blind spots, right? Mm. It's like. Uh, like a, a phrase I heard the other day is kind of cognitive diversity, right? So, yeah. <laughs> so, so an athlete, uh, sorry, a, a physio may have a particular skill set at picking up certain things with an athlete, but mm. but admittedly they can't do everything. And so a chiropractor might come from a slightly different angle with their skill set, and you know they can't do everything by themselves. But but you're kind of covering for each other. So the more diverse the team, in my opinion, the less blind spots there are, and essentially the less uh, injury injuries you're going to get maybe as a squad. Absolutely, yeah. You're all covering those uh, those different areas to, to sort of come together to make one super yes. uh, uh, team of clinicians. That's fantastic. Yeah. One super doctor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So if if we focus a bit more on on back pain yep. in terms of athletes, and that could be any athletes, 
Is their back pain the same back pain? So when someone, you know, a footballer comes to you and says, my back hurts, Mm -hmm. will they have a very similar injury to the weekend warrior who spoke about previously? So the desk worker who played five-a-side at the weekend, is their back issue the same? Majority of the time, yes. Um, The, I think... It's we call it non-specific back pain or mechanical back pain. Mm. The sort of back pain, to be honest, that you could, you could take an X-ray or an MRI scan of, and you won't see anything on the X-ray or MRI. You can't see the cause of the pain or the X-ray or the MRI scan. It's more of a movement-related issue um, that's causing the pain. And it's been shown that that type of back pain is uh, it's not a worrying type of back pain. That it's the, it is the same back pain that the general population gets and athletes get. Um, and and is and is very preventable as well. Mm. So I think around about seventy percent of back of back pain is is mechanical back pain. I think in the sporting population there are other types of back pain as well, right? So in the sporting population, uh, I think you see higher numbers of disc related issues. Um, okay. So so that's like a deeper structure in the spine. That the disc is, I guess, the cushion that sits between the vertebra. Um, and and with sports that involve a lot of twisting and bending and compressive loads to the spine, um, then the disc over a period of time will undergo extra stress, mm. and and you see a higher number of uh, of stress fractures as well, which is a very small percentage of back pain problems. But stress fractures, um, spondylolysis, that that would be higher in the sporting population as well. Yeah. No, um, absolutely makes sense. I mean, are there are there certain predictors for those type of uh, injuries or um, uh, structural issues that you look for again as you're screening with people coming through? Or the rarer so, again, one. the rarer uh, types of back that, pain. That, that's yeah. it. Yes. Oh, sorry. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So the rare. So if I were to go back to the stress fractures, um, stress fractures again, it's a rare type of back pain, but you would see a few more of them in the sporting population. Tend to see them at. At air, you know, at times like like the younger athlete that's maybe kind of moving out of a teenager into their twenties, and and sports that would involve a lot of flexion and extension—that's forward bending and back bending. Mm. Um, so so cricket bowlers and cricket bowlers, yeah, yeah uh, potentially butterfly swimmers or gymnasts, um, weightlifters, um, that, those types of sports, rowing, mm. uh, where there's a lot of forwards and backwards movement through the spine. Um, particularly at a time when that spine is still developing or is still growing or the, the density, the bone density, the strength of the bones may be slightly reduced. Um, yeah. Um, with with disc people, we touched on this a bit earlier, sorry, disc patients, we touched on this a bit earlier, but that might be your um, flexion and extension. So that's forwards and backwards, but it might also be mm. your rotation sport as well. So maybe golf might be in that as well. Um yeah. I was trying to think of rotation sport. The only one I could think uh, of was sports? discus uh, and tennis. Yeah, those types of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Discus, yeah. yeah, they spin a lot. Discus people. They yeah. do. Hammer throwers. Hammer throwers, yeah. Yeah, yeah lots of spinning. So that, that rotation. So we, we can take a look at that sport and say this, you know, that the specifics and the actions of this sport require this kind of movement. Therefore, we'll reverse engineer that and check for the classic irritations caused by those movements. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yes, yeah, and and I think the screening, if we if we're going to try, if we're trying to prevent these injuries, the screening would probably be the same for all types of back pain. So going back to the most common type of back pain, that's mechanical back pain, and disc problems and stress fractures. If we just use those three, I guess diagnoses, the screening would be the same thing. We need flexibility, we need strength and control, mm. um, and we need stability. Um, those three or four key things. And and if we have a as a clinician. As a medical team, if we have a battery test that picks up deficit in those areas um, and we try and improve those, then less stress through the spine, less chance of injury. So with, if we could think about the majority of back pain, so that non-specific, there's nothing on x-ray, there's no fractures, there's nothing nasty going on, mm. which, as we said, is the majority of, of sports pain or sports-related back pain and even more so the majority in, in non-elite athletes. Mm. It might be quite a hard question, but... Is there a general time you tell people to stop resting compared to or stop playing compared to actually doing active rest? Is there a time when you know you really think this person has to stop? Mm. Um, yeah, I think that if we were to use, if we were to try and ask, delve down, dig down a little bit deeper into at what point during their sport they they are getting their pain, um, and if we're seeing trends over a period of time. 
that the intensity of the pain is worsening or their function is worsening or their ability to cope with the injury is worsening and we monitor that over a period of time, then that's a point where we're really going to need to try and stop them or really modify their training. Whereas if they find that they're actually, we measure those things over time and it's not worsening, all right, maybe it's staying the same and it's a little bit up and down, but it's not worsening them then we can carry, they, that person can carry on training maybe up until there's a, a, a break in their competition or there's a, there's an off, you know, a period of, during their off season. Um, so it's, it's go would maybe going towards the, the questions I might, or we might want to ask an athlete about their symptoms specifically related to their sport. An example might be, um, when they start exercising, is there, does their pain get worse or does it does it actually get better and so and and so when they first start out yeah they might have a little niggle in their back as they start exercising but uh it does that niggle settle down as they get warmed up that would be a really good sign but one thing we want to keep an eye on is how long is it taking when they start doing their sport until it settles down and if we see that actually initially it was took five minutes before the back settled down when they're exercising but now it's taking 20 25 Uh, minutes that's a sign that things are worsening Mm. we need to be clever on how we manage their load or stop stop them doing their training and that all falls in with the calendar so if you've coming up to christmas you know and you've got a bit of a break or i know it's been a lot of criticism in in professional football about their calendar over december because people are playing two or three matches in a week almost that and that we're talking about load you know if they're running 10 15 uh, up to 20 kilometers in a match and then they're suddenly doing that three times a week plus training Mm. plus the other four months they've had before that that's a sudden increase and you can understand why there's some Flags being waved in support of mm. footballers to, uh... and those athletes who work to a whole season, f- football, rugby, hockey, all these, all these team sports. That this athletes in theory got to be able to keep at peak performance for many months on end. Yeah. Mm. That's that's almost that's almost impossible. Yeah. Whereas if you think maybe more of a maybe athletics like running, for example, that there's certain points in the calendar year where they can try and peak for a certain competition and then there's a period of time of recovery again afterwards and it's a number of peaks and troughs potentially more manageable potentially but when week in week out that's you you don't really think about it that way do you Mm. especially when then then there's um uh you know other matches out of season other tournaments going on if you're in a world cup year um i'm even thinking of tennis players like it used to be that summer season now it is all year round there's always an open somewhere um uh, you know they're just not getting that that breakdown anymore. Well, incredible athlete tennis players. Like if you think about the length of some of their matches, absolutely, yeah, and the, the level, yeah, every mm. almost every single day, at least every other day, doing a doing a big major tournament, yeah. week after week. I mean, I think those number that whoever's number one, it's got to be able to keep that going month after month after really month. Impressive, it's, it's amazing, yeah. yeah, incredible. And yeah. there's lots of sports like that as well. You know, where it's just you don't. I don't think people, or I certainly as well, you don't realize how Yes, they're playing five sets of tennis, but they're playing five sets of tennis at tennis at the highest level in the world. And the <laughs> amount they sprint and the amount, the power they put through those serves is insane. You know, it's not like we play five sets of tennis. You know, I'd, I'd be really, really tired after playing five sets of tennis, but... You need two weeks off, right? Exactly, <laughs> but, I'm, but I'm not serving <laughs> at 150 kilometers an hour. Or <laughs> This is it, they're playing at that level. Like I said, uh, after a, a, a seasonless year, you know, just this consistency yeah. in a different time zone and a different temperature on a different court. You know, is it clay this week? Is it grass? Am I playing for um, uh, each com- each uh, opponent is going to have a slightly different playing style to try and battle them? Um, yeah, absolutely incredible. Mm. Amazing mm. stuff. So once this athlete's got back pain, mm. are they generally better at recovering? And if you take out the fact that they'll probably hide or they might hide, uh, you know, injuries and problems, are they better at rehab because they are of a higher standard or, you know, are they just the same as your, you know, mm. anyone in clinic? I think that, I think that, I think you'll find that athletes generally probably will respond a little quicker. That probably more comes down to motivation um, and the team that they have working with them more than more than anything I don't think there's too much in it and the way the reason why I say that is I think that if the diagnosis is the diagnosis so let's take a disc injury right that that small category of back pain that that people that athletes might might be at risk of um a disc a bad disc injury is the healing time for a disc is about eight to eight to twelve weeks Mm. right that's the healing time so that's 
that's just the the natural cycle of those tissues need to heal over that time period. Um, so maybe an athlete with all of the therapists that they have and and it's almost like their full time job to rehab from that injury. We're probably maybe talking eight weeks, all right. But it's but that tissue's still got to heal. I can't we can't really speed that up. It's not magic. Yeah, it's not magic. Um, and maybe someone more in the general population where they're still having to live their life day to day. They maybe they they haven't got a whole team pe- of people working with them. All right, maybe we're leaning more towards the twelve week mark, but there's still that range of eight to twelve weeks. It's not a huge amount in it, um, and that's just simply down to the tissues have to heal. It's it's not magic. Mm. But I'm sure. I mean, I find as well when I'm rehabbing or treating patients who have a good understanding of their body, and that could be from Pilates or yoga or tennis. Or I find that people who know how to position themselves in space and have a bit better strength. When I show them an exercise or go through an exercise, I find they'll pick it up a bit quicker mm. than someone that hasn't lifted a weight or set foot in a Pilates or gym or anything in the last 30 years. So mm. in my experience is that, but I wonder how that plays out with the elite athletes as well. I think you're, I think you're right with that. I think um, their body awareness and they, they, they ask more questions, don't they? They want to know more. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, I think, you, I think you're right with that. Um, I think sometimes... It, you actually have to dial da- dial back an athlete. They want to know. They want to do things too much, too quickly. Um, and sometimes there's a skill from our side of things where we have to recognise that and dial them back a little bit. Um, yeah, it's hard. It's hard. It's tricky. It's really hard. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. that's got to be one of the uh, a really tough bit. I bet you know. Can I play doc? That's that's what they want to know. You know. Let me on. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I th- I think that's where the mul- again the multidisciplinary approach comes in. Is that it's. If if I feel that pressure from an athlete as a single practitioner by myself, that's tough and it's tricky. And I can try and have a conversation with that athlete to get them on side or to understand the position they're in and do my best to get. But actually, if I start to involve other people in the medical team and get other people's opinions, grab a couple of the physios, grab the sports doc, send them out for a second opinion outside of the club, mm. then then it's now it's a team approach. And now we've got that that mound of evidence we can use in the discussion with the player to to minimize the chance that they're going to go out and injure themselves anymore get them on board yeah so yeah. when i feel the heat in a even in a practice pri- pri- practice <laughs> setting sorry private practice setting and it's just me and the athlete in the room to be honest i start more recently start to look to do the same thing i i'm gonna you know i'm gonna take the pressure off myself as the key decision maker in that and i'm gonna try and involve other people in it as well that's really interesting that makes sense yeah mm-hmm. absolutely so I know that you do a bit of an, uh, like you said, that pre-assessment. Is that is there anything out there that people listening who are athletes or want to be athletes or the weekend warriors can do to themselves to not screen themselves but to better mm. prepare themselves? If yeah, I, I think if I think if you if uh, the individual athlete out there listening is if they can use those three or four key areas: flexibility. Let's just say let's 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 say three: flexibility, strength, and control. If they can think about their their day to day or week to week schedule that they're doing for their sport, are they ticking all of those three boxes? Um, flexibility. Let's use that as an example. Are they before they go out and 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 play their sport? Are they doing a number of warm up mobility loosening type exercises for their hips and their back and their spine? Mm. Um, within a week, are they do are they getting a couple of strength sessions in? Strength for the spine involve the core that's kind of the ab- the abdomen and the back muscles are they are they working on improving strength in that area that might include endurance as well by the way so it's the ability for those muscles to work for a long period of time and then control that's kind of the idea that as the person is moving through a range of motion so as they're doing their sport um that they are doing it in with is it smooth is it is it controlled is it yeah it's, non-ratchety and in, in it's not in, jerky not jerky exactly um and by the way on that note i think that's where yoga can have its benefits i think more sports teams just as more sports teams sports medical teams are including chiropractors and osteopaths i think more of them are including yoga therapists as well because if you think about yoga it's a series of controlled movements that includes elements of flexibility and includes elements of strength um, so yeah, flexibility, strength, and control are, are is the athlete ticking all of those three boxes over, say, a week's period? Yeah, so they can seek the assistance of a physio, an osteo, a chiro, sports doc, someone who can assess them as tell well, them and where tell them where their weakest are, yeah. and then point them in the right direction, more specific, yeah, more specific to them. Mm. And and by the way, I think our treatments 
uh, our hands-on treatments that we do as manual therapists, uh, and that would not just chiropractors, but osteopaths and physios as well, sports therapists too. I think our treatments, our hands-on treatments help their body better accept the exercise that they're about to do. So, so what I mean by that is we're trying to get their body to function that little bit better. And so when they go out and start to, to do their sport, their body is going to adapt to that, to that load or their sport better. And uh, you'll find that in these sports medical teams, most of the hands-on therapy is done before they go out and train. Mm. So we're trying to prepare their body before they go out and train, um, as opposed to them training them and then rolling in afterwards and then, and then having some treatment afterwards. I never thought about that. So again, it's preventative. Again, this whole model is to prevent any any loss of time in, uh, well, uh, time playing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 So it completely flips the private practice model on its head, really, which is wait until the patient's injured, come mm. in, get help, mm. feel better, go away. Mm. Your model is the complete opposite. Mm. See them every day and then assess them and stop them getting to that point. Mm. Mm. For So for the um, uh, athletes who are listening or people who want to be athletes, again, most people don't have that team of therapists to say, hey, this is not an ache, this is a pain, you're therefore not going to play or you're going to drop the weight or you're going to decrease that load for a set amount of time. So what people at home might be thinking is, well, when do I stop? Uh, you know, Is there a metric or is there something which should tell me this is not something I should play or train through, I should be resting? Mm-hmm. I've, I've touched on... Um, I'm going to try and answer that question, but stop me if I'm going off track. I've touched on earlier about one idea of how if they are noticing that as they go out training, their back pain eases off as they get warmed up and me saying that that's a good sign. Um, but we're going to maybe keep an eye on how long it is until the pain starts to, e- to ease off into their training session. Um, and if we see signs that it's taking longer and longer to ease off, that we've got to be cautious with that. Mm. But the same thing, say say they start the training session, they're pain-free, okay? But then maybe halfway through their training session, there's some, some awareness and pain kicks in. That would be another mark we need to keep an eye on. So we need to make a note. We, it might not necessarily be an alarming pain, but we need to roughly make a note at what point in their session the pain is kicking in. And if we find that the pain is kicking into their session earlier and earlier into a session, again, that's something we need to be careful of. Yeah. Other markers too is that they start off a session, they feel great, halfway through the pain kicks in. Does the pain stay the same? Mm. That's not so bad. That's okay. They can manage that. The pain can stay the same until they finish the session and then it quickly settles down afterwards. Not so alarming. But if the pain carries on going on and on and on and on and increasing, increasing throughout a session, again, that might be something that we need to keep an eye on. Um, and, and, and after their training, so say they do have some discomfort when they're training, well, how quickly does it stop? Does it stop straight away as soon as they stop training? That would be a good sign. Or are we finding that actually it's lingering for a few, quite a few hours afterwards and the next day they're still feeling sore? Mm. Maybe less good. A marker that you see in lots of research in terms of what is good pain or worrying pain, for some reason, the number four out of 10 seems to keep coming up. Okay. So 10 out of 10 would be the worst pain imaginable. Okay. Mm. Four out of 10 is the marker of like, okay, that's okay but five out of 10 is a bit too much. Right. Yeah. So if you're experiencing back pain and it's a four out of 10 during a training session, that might not be so alarming. But if you think it's going a bit more, then we probably need to stop that session. Um, and they use that in in the rehabilitation phase. So once the once the injuries settle down, is using that as a marker to, yeah. To, so you're not bumping up too high against that, that five. Yeah. 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 Okay, you heard it here first. Fantastic. So we've got to be our own team of therapists, have that honest conversation with ourselves, either during training or if there is a, a reoccurrence or an occurrence of pain. Um, am I dropping above that that four out of 10 or, or raising above that four out of 10? Is my pain worsening and worsening? Are the, are the parameters of that, of that pain or irritation increasing over time? You know, is it kicking in instead of 30 minutes, 20 minutes? Am I noticing myself on a, on a decline or on a negative uh, trend? In which case, we've got to mould and change our activity rate to decrease the load and allow ourselves to get the other side. Yeah, well said. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. I've been listening. Yeah. <laughs> and obviously that excludes any of the red flag signs, which I know we've spoken about on a previous podcast. I mean, obviously, if you have any red flag signs, those are, are serious emergencies that need to get checked out. But we're talking about the general, non-specific type of of, of lower back pain. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So has this working with elite athletes changed how you manage patients in clinic? You know, if you, from day one to now, has that evolved it? 
Yeah, it has. I'm, I, I mentioned already that I'm looking more towards a multidisciplinary approach. I have a confidence in the skill set that I have. I know I can make a big difference with my athletes and I know chiropractors in general can, can have a fantastic skill set to be able to help athletes. But I also recognize where my limitations are. And I feel like I've learned that by mixing with more different types of therapists and seeing a more broader range of athletes. Um, and so I'm going to look in private practice, I'm going to look to build a team of therapists in-house for, to cover my blind spots, really. Mm. So that's um, one thing I mentioned. And, it, and and my advice has been to a couple of colleagues as well, is that not every, not all chiropractors can work in a multidisciplinary setting and a big clinic with lots of different rooms that's sometimes not always possible but it's having it's working harder if you're in that situation working harder to build build a network of other therapists around us in other places mm. so that an athlete comes to see me if i can't deal with it in-house or with my skill set then i i know the go-to person nearby that i can that i can uh, get some advice from or the athlete can get some advice for or i can refer to um I, the, another thing that I think has really improved in my private practice is learning from sports medicine is once an athlete has recovered from their back pain or they're, they've come into me with an injury, the pain is really settling down, their function's starting to improve in their spine as well. Now there comes a point where I need to get that athlete back doing their sport again. And it's a really tricky time. And I used to say words like to the athlete, I used to say them so that the back pain's really good. I'm feeling a bit of pressure from them, right? Because they want to get back playing their sport. And I say to them, okay, well, just all right, go back and go back and do your sport, but just just be gentle and see how you go. Just really vague comments like that. And mm. and uh, and uh, and if it hurts, then stop. You know. Whereas I can be a bit more specific now with confidence. I can say to them, maybe use the four out of ten as an idea, or or but but learning from how they do things in professional sport. There's this whole return to training protocol that they take each individual player who's coming back from an injury and they walk them through a series of almost controlled experiments over time mm. before they green light them and then send them back into full training with the rest of the squad. And that's something that I have tried to implement in private practice. I'm still trying to do it. It's, it's a little bit of trial and error because of course in a sports medicine setting, they can, there's a whole team of people going, we can take them out, we can watch them on the field doing certain athletes and drills. And I can't do that in private practice. I haven't got the space Big gyms and big equipment. Yes, yeah. All of the tech. So it's sitting down at the time that the athlete is ready for it. I sit them down. It's a conversation between me and them. And I'm going to try and design a series of controlled experiments for the athlete over time to try and reduce the chance of them having a full-blown relapse as they're getting back to their sport. Because that would be the disaster, right? Absolutely. So the guideline again is is almost like I'm using fifty percent, seventy five percent, and ninety percent is like the, the the tick boxes over time. Mm. So let me give you an example: someone who has come to see me with some back pain, they've been lifting some weights in the gym, and that's been the original cause of their back pain. In particular, maybe a a squat and a deadlift. Right, they're quite common a things. Classic. Like, yeah, they're classic. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when the athlete is out of pain and they they are their spine starting to function a bit better, then I'm going to say to the athlete, okay, I want you to go back to the gym between this session and next time I see you, and I want you to to to, to try a squat for me. I want you to go fifty percent of the depth of your squat and maybe fifty percent of the weight mm. and fifty percent of the speed that what you're normally used to doing. And then I want you to come back and we can check you through and see how you're going. If they tick that box, then I'm going to do the same thing with seventy five percent. They tick that, then. 90% and then it's and then I know that me or well, me and the athlete both know that we're sending them back to f- their full training schedule in their gym with little chance that they're going to have a full performance and if they have a little relapse it is only a little relapse you've tested it that way before exactly yeah and so I, I'm breaking down each it, it, I'm using weightlifting as an example but I could do that with any sport you, mm. you what are the individual components of that sport and how can I test it over a period of time so that the athlete is building confidence, I'm building confidence, and we know that we can sign them off, green light them, right, yeah, back to full training, happy days. Okay, so 50, 75, and 95. 50, 75, 90, 90. and then 100. Gotcha. They're off, yeah. And that cool. could be miles, time running, it could be adapted to any sport, balls hit. I know that, you know, I've worked with a lot of cricketers, and balls thrown is a big, a balls bowled is a big thing, you know, and limiting children to, you can only bowl, 12 mm. bowls or 12 balls or six overs or whatever it might be. And they're just not that that's your fine. That, that's your limit. And yeah. then 
increasing yeah. that as you return and to it's, play. It's under yeah yeah good, good good example. It's understanding what the athlete had been used to doing before they got injured. So that would be the, their equivalent of a hundred percent. Okay, and then they've obviously been out for a period of time now because they've been rehabbing, and then it's fifty percent of what they used to do, seventy five percent, and then ninety percent, and then a hundred percent. It's a rough guideline. It's going to vary. You know, you're going to have to think on your feet a little bit. It's a, it's a conversation that had that's had um, not a decision you make for one particular person. Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> we can adapt that as well and bring it back from even the sporting athlete. So, um, or the sporting population, uh, we can say, well, look, uh, if you're getting your pain when gardening, but that's your activity, that's your sport. Let's say it's half the flower bed. It's it's um, you know uh, four pots potted. I'm not a gardener, guys. You, you've got to, if anyone's a gardener, um, uh, feel free Apologies. to, to, to uh, write abusive emails to us because <laughs> my lack of knowledge. But um, blaspheming uh, all of gardening. Well, exactly. I mean, Gardener's we, we can, world's going to be after you next. Take that 50, 75, 90 into any activity that we want to be returning to. Um, yeah, that works. Mm, mm. Fantastic. Yeah. So I know I just spoke a, briefly, touched on children and in terms mm. of cricket bowlers. Does do you have athletes who have a large diversity of sport when they're young compared to people who are specialised early? Is that something which will put people at more prone to or more risk of of certain injuries, mm. especially back pain? Mm. Um, I think it's uh, understood that if uh, a a young athlete can try a number of different sports, that that is better for their development, and then they specialise a little bit later. Um, I think it creates a more well-rounded athlete. And I think there's even been some studies, I think I read something a while ago, that they had a look at um, the, the people who made it onto the Olympic, the American Olympic team over a number of successive Olympics. And they, they looked at each individual athlete and they, and actually the best athletes in any given sport all, almost had two or three different sports they could have chosen. Yeah. They could have chosen to do before they chose that one particular sport that they are now competing in the Olympics at doing. Um, so I think there is benefit in creating a, as a young athlete, creating a more rounded athlete. Um, it changes going back to load again, sorry, it changes the load. It mixes up the load that you can put through that young developing person's body, which I think is a good thing. Absolutely. And the, the repetition of training at such a young age without that diversification, without that, that difference in load, um, you can see how very quickly, uh, it would start to to become too much, start to break down structures. Mm. And I think the the want to um, to specialise and to get better as fast as possible, there's cash, there's hopes, there's dreams, there's all these things as a, as motivation to get it done. I want to be the youngest golfer, the, mm. uh, the youngest uh, equestrian rider. Uh, yeah, and to get into that, that f- um, famous spot very quickly, it's got to be tough. Sport, sport's got to be fun when you're growing up, isn't yeah. it? Sport's mm. got to be fun. And I think if the more variety, the more fun it's going to be. And I would just question whose cash and hopes and dreams. Is it the child's <laughs> yeah. or is it the parent's? Quite, um, yes. So, so yeah, I think take the, take the stress out, take the pressure yeah. off the child instead of, put, instead of pigeonholing in one sport, try a number of different sports, keep it fun. And then yeah. when, they're, when the time is right, they can choose, if, if they can choose which sport they, they prefer. I remember Dave and I did a course with uh, about golfers and one of the golf coaches there was was speaking and he teaches everyone from professionals to five-year-olds and he said people would or parents would turn up with their five-year-old hoping they were going to be the next Tiger Woods or Justin Spieth, you know, Jason, what's his name? Spieth? Jordan Spieth, Jordan that Spieth. one. Um, hoping they were going to be the next professional and he wouldn't get them playing golf. He said they would be running and catching and throwing and jumping and landing mm. and doing these huge dynamic movements that kids have to be able to learn to do. And he said they would do that and they might learn to throw a ball into a, into a golf and understand some principles of it, but they wouldn't actually be swinging a club for quite a while. And he said parents got really annoyed at him and he said, we need to develop these all-round athletes first before early specialisation. I mean, people like Tiger Woods, he was a collegiate basketball player. I think before he could have specialized in any sport and he chose golf. Fantastic. Um, uh, th- this is it. And I think, yeah, like you said, you've got to, got to think where that drive's coming from. So Nick, um, we've, we've talked a lot about sort of bringing athletes out of play at, at the right moments or decreasing and, and modifying their training, uh, their play and, and everything else. And again, same with um, uh, the, uh, the, the regular population. But here's the thing. Often with uh, well, with most people, that activity level, that sport, the thing that they love, they enjoy, let's not even get into the paychecks, 
to be taken out of that, that can be quite a big um, uh, mental challenge. That can be quite a big effect on your mentality, your outlook and all the rest, especially for an athlete. I keep dropping paycheck hints, but actually if you've put four years of your life to, to go into that cycle to, to um, amp up for a, especially like athletics, you know, for a competition, um, even if you're um, uh, a seasoned player, you know, every day, every hour is dedicated to you becoming better at that sport to then be taken out of that can have quite an effect, I would imagine, on um, uh, on the mentality of a player. Um, and again, for, going back to the normal population, I know many patients who who really feel an impact when they can't exercise, when they can't do the things they want to do. Is there a, an airing towards taking care of that as well uh, within your, your sporting field? Mm. Hey, I get grumpy when I don't exercise. I don't know. Yeah, I know right? yeah. <laughs> I'm just a, I'm yeah. just a weekend warrior. <laughs> I'm just a um, ultra athlete. Um, I uh, yeah, I think uh, more sports medicine, more 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 multidisciplinary teams are including sports psychologists. Mm. I know that a couple of the teams that I've worked have certainly include them, um, and I, I think it's an important. I think it's an important thing to to look into. I know that every interaction I have with an athlete, I am mindful that not only am I trying to improve their their physical state, yeah. but things that I say and things that I do could potentially have a positive or negative impact on their psychological state as well. So I'm mindful of that. And, um, and I'm trying to produce a physically robust athlete, but I'm also trying to produce a psychologically robust athlete as well. I'm, I, I think that, there's a trend towards trying to get athletes to be less reliant on passive forms of treatment. So um, if I was to count my what I'm doing with my hands for the athlete, trying to improve their their, their the way their body's working yeah. um, as, a, as a, a passive form of treatment, I'm doing it for them. Mm. There's a trend towards moving away from that and trying to encourage the athlete um, to be more active in their approach. Um, so I'm trying to give them the tools that they can manage their own body. I'm trying to empower them to, to to be in control of how their body is working because that way we're producing a physically robust body and a psychologically robust body. Absolutely. That's more in a competition setting, but I, again, like a, uh, an athlete that has been out, maybe injured for a long period of time and they're, you know, they're not only injured, so they're not doing the thing that they love to do, but they're not hanging out with their their crewmates or their their clubmates, yeah, and uh, and there's a whole psychology involved with it. And you, I can think of a few athletes that have been out for many months with real serious injuries, mm. um, and it's a big emphasis to to try and monitor that person's well being, like the psychological well being. You've got to help pep them up when they need to be pepped up, yeah. Um, and do you feel for him? I can think of one athlete recently who's had a long-standing injury, and he and he's tried to come back to return to that return to training protocol and his body keeps breaking down two, three times and it's tough to see. Um, but I think, um, I think sports medicine is recognizing the importance of having a sports psychologist on the team to, to help athletes with that. Yeah, absolutely. Makes sense. Um, so yeah, if you're, again, if you're listening at home, um, if you're out of activity, if you're not able to do what you love, what you fancy or just what you feel like, um, this feeling of, um, uh, uh, well, if you're pissed off about it, quite frankly, um, you're not alone. This is happening throughout the different echelons of, of, of sport, uh, whether in the professional world or whether you just want to play a bit of five-a-side on a Friday with your mates. Um, it, it's going to have an effect on that. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Mm. But you'll get through it. You'll get back in. Mm -hmm. mm. Using the patented 50, 75, 90 <laughs> You heard it here first, guys. The Metcalf protocol, I think. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We'll tell you, Nick, before we wrap this up, look, um, we all want to be like our idols, right? If we like a particular footballer, we'll do their workout to try and get better. If um, uh, if Nadal puts up a, I do these sit-ups to make me better at tennis, we know we'll all be seeing everyone at the tennis club doing those sit-ups on Monday morning. What's the, the average day looking like for um, a professional athlete that you might be looking after? Uh, besides training, I'm sure there's um, a big swing to more weight style training. Uh, uh, that, that seems to be that strength and conditioning seems to be a big part of most sports now. It's probably going along the lines of the control that we were talking about earlier. 
Do they have, uh, like you said, Pilates? Are they stretching? Do you give them uh, home workouts to do? Uh, is it all in club? What can I do to be like a premiership footballer come Monday morning? <laughs> Easy, right? Not, I, don't ask for much. I don't ask for much. <laughs> yeah. Right, for these five tips, I'm going to tell you everything you need to know. Yeah. 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 Tomorrow I, you'll be Raheem Sterling. Yeah. Yeah. I, think, um, I think there's training for these athletes, uh, bearing in mind they have all day, they have all day to, to, to get their bodies better to, to, to be ready for competition training there, there may be a couple of squad training sessions where they're training with their teammates that are organized by the strength and conditioning athletes and then mm. but each play, individual player knows where their deficits are as well based on the number of different tests that the, the the medical team will do on them and it's an education process the medical team are trying to educate the athletes where their deficits are so that we're trying to empower them so they know what exercises they need to do themselves on a, you know okay. away from the squad to try and get their body to work better um, and and they're encouraged there's windows during the day where we're encouraged to do those types of things um, so a, a, an athlete may arrive at the club in the morning they will they will immediately go up and have some breakfast um, which is put on by the club because the club wants to ensure they're getting the best food inside them mm. and then they'll come down and there's a period of time where they'll have this um, this hands-on treatment from the medical team from all different members of the medical team then they go into the gym and they do the, what's called pre-activation um, mm. it's commonplace in lots of sports clubs where the athlete is actively trying to prepare their body to, to ready for training then they go out training which is the squad thing everyone's doing the same thing they're working on strength conditioning skills tactics um, and then they're rolling straight into the lunch hall again. They're having some lunch, and then again afterwards, um, they will. They may even do things like ice baths and cryotherapy and mm. certain things like that. Um, and then in an afternoon, uh, there'll be a second training session again with the squad, maybe inside the gym, maybe outside. Um, and then in an evening, they might have uh, some Pilates or some yoga or some exercise. Do and there's a big chunk of time. The the rest recovery thing is important. Uh, I think undervalued as well by a lot of amateur athletes is yeah. train hard, but you've got to re you've got to rest yeah. hard as well. You've got to <laughs> sleep well. You've got to get the right nutrients inside to help your body recover. So you mean they don't drive to training five minutes late, get out, do a few shoddy calf stretches, and just go straight into a match? <laughs> How strange that they don't get as many injuries yeah. as our five aside players yeah. that play on a Sunday. Very it. odd. <laughs> you got it. It's a full time job. They're trying. It's a full time yeah. job for them, isn't it? They're trying to. Uh, they're trying to. Yeah, they're trying to get. Well, think about the hours that most people spend at work, day to day, and then do sports on top of it. What people spend at work is what they're doing for a job. So you know they'll spend all of their hours doing something productive towards their end goal, which is scoring a goal at the weekend or scoring a try or whatever it might be. Everything in their life is geared towards that, which mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. the difference. And 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 the the team, the medical team or the club will be trying to break down as many barriers for them as possible that get in the way of being out them being able to do their job. Yeah. Mm. Helicopter into training pitch, they don't have to uh, <laughs> don't have to cope with traffic. And that's like it. Yes, yeah, so, uh, stress. You see, it's building the load. Um, <clears throat> fantastic. So to recover like a pro athlete, we want to be putting the right building blocks in. So you mentioned diet very quickly there, mm -hmm. and again, we won't go down that rabbit hole because mm -hmm. we'll be here for another hour. But um. Uh, we want to make sure that if I want to recover just like Rooney, if I want to be um, uh, getting the best like a pro athlete, I should be putting the right building blocks in, a nice anti-inflammatory diet, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. I'm sure they're not scoffing down quavers every morning. Um, not my breakfast of choice, by the way. <laughs> uh, we want to be looking at all holistic elements of my, um, my daily routine or my life to say, what am I missing or what am I maxing out my... Um, uh, my allowance for load. So is it my sleep that's not good so I'm not recovering? Mm. Um, is it my, uh, my nutrition, my training, my mm. stretching? Uh, am I continuing to do a bad um, uh, patterning of movement? So that means I'm continuing to aggravate. And most importantly, do I have a good team behind me, whether it's me up top mentally or do I have access to physios, osteopaths, um, uh, chiropractors or sports therapists? Can I get on Google and find one locally to help out with that hands-on element? Therefore, just like a professional footballer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'll get my kit on Monday. Brilliant. <laughs> Big shout out to all those who do eat quavers for breakfast. I'm sure some people listening probably <laughs> like do have quavers champion. for breakfast. Yeah. Uh, hashtag Quaver Nation. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and Dave, the most current, most current footballer you knew was Rain Rooney. I was about well. to say Ryan Giggs, to be honest. And I caught myself and I thought Rain Rooney was slightly better. Uh, yeah, my professional sports. Dennis Birdcamp was probably the other. <laughs> yeah. 
I was about to say Damon Hill at one point, but that was the wrong one. We're at the end of the uh, of, of the football knowledge from You've done well. Yeah, uh, fantastic, Nick. Thank you so much for joining us here today. We've had some uh, had some absolute crackers, uh, some really good info, and a nice in depth look into uh, life behind the scenes at a big club. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you, fun. Hey, no worries at all. Uh, Nick, if we want to contact you, where do we find you? Um, I have a, uh, a website. It's uh, www.nickjmetcalf, uh, with an E on the end, nickjmetcalf.com. Uh, you can find out some more information about me uh, and where I work um, and where my private practice is. And if you're looking for a, uh, a, a reputable chiropractor who who has experience working in sport, well, first of all, I think a good starting point is uh, would be the, the British Chiropractic Association. Um, and specifically if they, if, if the chiropractor is explaining that they have had some experience in sport on their website, that's a good start. Mm. And you mentioned at the start there, Dave, when you introduced me that the Royal College of Chiropractors Sports Faculty, if, uh, if a chiropractor is a member of the Royal College of Chiropractors Sports Faculty, there's, uh, um, certain kind of experience that they have to, to be on that register mm. um, that's a good place to find a good sports chiropractor brilliant thank you very much Nick fantastic Nick Rob me brilliant thank right. you thanks guys <laughs> cheers <laughs>